Hello, manufacturing world. I'm Wade Anderson with Shop Matters, sponsored by Akuma America. This podcast is created to discuss all things machining and manufacturing. Today, we are going to be talking everything you need to know about work holding. Joining me in the studio today, I've got uh, a guy. I'm going to back up a little bit before I introduce him and tell you the story about how I met him. So, uh, <laughs> so this is uh, where I say it's important to talk to strangers. Uh, and I know as parents, we always teach our children never talk to strangers. But I got a voicemail from this guy, and it was very dry. It was just, uh, yeah, hey, Wade, uh, I'm, I'm with a work holding company. I uh, heard you manage the partners and think at Akuma. Um, give me a call. Uh, by the way, I'm friends with Bob Elsey. And I first thought, wait a minute, Bob Elsey doesn't have any friends. So this, I've got to get to the bottom of this. So That is true, by the way. I guess I'll find out if Bob's actually listening to this podcast now. We'll so. find out for sure. <laughs> so joining me in the studio today is Jason Bateman from Juergen's Workholding. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Wade. Uh, I'm happy to be here today. All happy right. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Um, I've been around work holding for a long time. I actually started one of the, uh, my first jobs uh, when I got into working for an OEM machine tool builder. Uh, I worked for another machine tool company uh, for a while before coming to Okuma. And a big part of what I did was process development work, and I made a lot of my own fixtures and work holdings. So um, this is a topic near and dear to my heart, something I really enjoy doing. And uh, Jason, I've worked with a lot of work holding guys, uh, but I got to say, uh, by far, you are one of the most knowledgeable guys that I've ever dealt with. Appreciate so, that. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about how did you get into the manufacturing world? How did you get into this industry? Well, you know, I, I think I got more forced than anything. Uh, <laughs> what I mean by that is uh, dad started uh, a tool and die business uh, in the family's uh, garage. And uh, out of my siblings, I was the only one that really... Uh, uh, participated. Uh, so that was sort of a uh, forced training program, if you will. Dad would plug me in with uh, one of his die makers, and um, that would be my tutor for the next year or something. So uh, it was those kinds of experiences and working with those kind of guys that really developed a lot of depth for me and exposed me to a lot of things. Um, so as painful as it might have been at times, uh, I, I really, looking backwards now, really value those experiences. They were really pretty neat. That's awesome. What do you see? What are some of the biggest trends that you're seeing right now in, in your industry? In the, in the side, when I say industry, we're all in industry together, right? Mm -hmm. But in the work-holding segment of, of this market space, what are new things? What stuff that Jurgens is working on? So one of the things that uh, is all the rage at the moment is uh, how to process five-axis parts. So everybody's got, uh, you know, interest in uh, how do we hold it, uh, how do we get density now. People want to do density in, in the five-axis environment. It used to be just one piece. Now people want to do density. So we're getting a lot of inquiries on how that um, comes into the, the viewfinder. So let me hit the pause button there. Explain density a little bit more. Let's peel that onion. Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, in, um, in, the, in the normal, uh, I should say normal, uh, it's not really normal. I guess it's the, 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 the vertical milling uh, arena. You'll have um, a tendency uh, out there to purchase uh, this 40 by 20 machine, let's say. And usually we'll put like a vise maybe maybe two vices on there but if if we take a look at that for a minute and, and i i throw this at customers a lot is what um you know you got 800 square inches of table there uh 
you put on a vise that really, at its best case, could uh, hold 42 square inches of uh, something, right? Well, you still have the rest of that table. So your, your spindle utilization uh, and your table utilization is next to nil. So what we coach them up on is how do we take advantage of the rest of that space? Uh, so therefore, the, the density conversation comes into play. So we start working on uh, how many pieces can we get under spindle? How long can we keep that spindle running without interruption? Because it's only when your spindle is running and making chips that you're making money. You're not making money when you're changing fixtures. You're not making money uh, when it's doing tool changes. Um, you're, you're only making money really when you're cutting chips. So uh, density. So that uh, concept really has not migrated into the five-axis uh, environment until just recently. So a lot of folks are going, hey, I want to be able to take and put three or four parts uh, on, the, uh, say, like a flower-type fixture or a multifaceted fixture so I could process four parts at a time. Or possibly it's I want to do two op-10s, two op-20s kind of thing. Or we've even seen cu customers now ask us, hey, is there a way we could build like a, a little tombstone that would fit on our platter? Uh, so those are some of the, the density uh, conversations that are starting to occur around 5-axis, which until recently wasn't really a conversation. Okay. Back uh, years ago, I used to do a lot of the work holding I did were for grinders. I did a lot of work on 5-6-axis super abrasive grinders. Mm -hmm. We would use a, a base plate set up where we would take them on, in and out of the machine really quickly, and mm -hmm. then we'd put, uh, put the work holding piece on top of the, uh, the base plate, basically. Sure. Um, so that's something that, that we were doing quite a while back. But I don't see us doing it that much, um, even internally at Akuma. Um, here, Correct. it's probably been a year ago or so, I got asked to come and speak to a group with the NTMA from their work holding division at the NTMA. Uh, great group of guys. I'm trying to think, okay, what do I, uh, what do, I do to present to guys that, that do this every day? So I did a piece on quick change. You know, how do we get... Uh, better at utilizing quick change tooling and, and reducing our setup times and uh, wanted to get some examples to pull together some PowerPoint material and I walk out I've got an M560 sitting on my showroom floor there at the Partners and Think building and I'm going to go out and take pictures of that use that to start building my PowerPoint and I open the door on the machine and look and I've got a vice on the on the 4020 table one vice with one part and it looks like the vice was probably pulled off of a knee mill somewhere. And I'm just thinking, my gosh, I'm, I'm my own worst critic, right? I'm the guy that I'm usually talking about, that mm -hmm. this is not how you should be processing parts. And yet I walk out on my own machine, and, and that's how we had it set up. So currently um, in the Partners and Think building, I've got two M560s. And I've got one of your base plates um, along with your ball lock system. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that and, and tell the audience listening what do we have set up and, and some of the tolerances? When you're pulling stuff off, putting items back, what can you expect from a, a tolerance standpoint? Certainly. So, um, you know, we, we talked about this real estate piece a minute ago. Um, if you consider that, um, you know, you take a, a, a 40 by 20 machine and you look at that 800 square inches and you look at uh, the fact that you could have possibly spent $130,000 on that. That comes out to right around $160 a square inch is what that real estate on that table costs you. Now, if we convert that to square footage, um, you know, that's some really expensive square footage. Uh, that's way more expensive than any um, building 
uh, square footage that you could buy. So why are we not utilizing it better? Um, so that's where the Ballock system comes in. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm always amazed with Ballock. It's actually been around since the late 70s. Uh, and there's so many folks that have never had an opportunity to really uh, work with it, understand it. And really what it does is it provides a foundational element for users to quickly and very repeatedly take their tooling on and off their machine tool. Uh, it's really, as we like to talk, um, one of the first steps in the um, automation uh, staircase, really, because, um, you know, in automation, uh, you know, of course, there's tons of definitions uh, of that. But what what we see is that, um, you know, you're, you're really eliminating variables when you start getting into automation. And really, that's what the ball lock system does is it eliminates variables because it gives you defined locations that you can mount and dismount repeatedly uh, your your vices, your fixture plates. Um, you can make adapter plates, and we can actually provide a foundational element to allow really anybody's work holding at the end of the day to be quickly and rapidly taken on and off the system. So um, in terms of accuracy, we look at a 5 tenths repeatability uh, when we're taking fixture plates on and off. Um, we typically will configure the table, has the receiver piece in it. The fixture plate is going to have, uh, in two corners, precision uh, locating bushings. And then in the opposite two corners, so we don't get over-constricted, it's typically going to be left opened. Uh, so we really have a primary liner, and, uh, and you can... You can play with this however you like, but you typically we put the primary liner in the lower right-hand corner. Uh, we put the, the, the other liner up in the upper left-hand corner, and then, like I said, we leave the, the opposite corners uh, open. And this affords us the ability to locate uh, and uh, repeatedly position plates, uh, whatever that, that item might be, on and off the table. So, um, you know, it's handy for things like rotaries. Um, you know, right now at the Think uh, facility, we have the machines uh, with the rotaries on them. And if those of us that have had to install rotaries, we know that when we take that rotary off, we're always thinking in the back of our head, oh, this is going to be tough because now I'm going to be spending, I'm going to be spending at least a couple hours indicating this thing in and clamping it down and going through all that stuff. So here we have a situation where we have a fixture plate mounted to the bottom of the rotary. That fixture plate has a pattern that matches a pattern in the subplate, which is mounted to the T-slot table. And all we have to do now is remove four pins, remove the cables from the bulkhead. It actually takes you longer to probably find the tow motor or the crane to take that rotary uh, out of the machine. And then when you go to put it back in, it's literally re rewind that process, four pins, attach your cables in the bulkhead, you're done. So uh, the ball lock system and, and that kind of thing really uh, affords us the ability to manage variables um, and do it repeatedly and accurately. So that's something that really, uh, I look at it, attacks efficiencies, right? Yes. So you touched on earlier, uh, machines are only making money if they're cutting chips. Mm -hmm. you know, everybody in the industry knows that. Everything that we do today, we, we talk a lot about connected machines. We talk about smart factory. We talk about 
being able to see what's taking place on your shop floor, yet when we measure the efficiency or the utilization of spindles in current machine shops, we're seeing 35 to 40% spindle utilization. So a lot of people come to us and, and we'll talk about, you know, why do you use a connected machine? Why do you measure things? And it, it all comes down to what efficiency are you driving towards? And then where are the, the low-hanging fruit where you can try to gain some of that back? And what I see over and over consistently is work holding. Um, it, it comes down to most people in, in North America right now in manufacturing uh, are, are doing high-mix, low-volume work. So Correct. they're constantly changing over. They do five of these parts, ten of these parts. Mm-hmm. Um, so change over time is a big problem. And where most of their downtime comes in is when they're going from part A to part B. Correct. And they're taking work holding off and, and setting things back up. Um, and that, that to me, is a big part of the low-hanging fruit that we can attack from yeah. our OEM and, and from walking customers' floors and finding ways to do things better. Um, what do you see – what are ways that people could could approach that? So um, what is um, super exciting for me, um, being, I guess, sort of a manufacturing nerd and, and being able to play with this stuff all the time, is um, we'll take the uh, Akuma platform, um, for example. The controller is so incredibly powerful, and there are so many different um, applications that are developed. And, and honestly, I don't even think we've scratched the scratch on that yet. But there's some incredible applications developed for the controller. So then you couple uh, that with some of the peripherals that are available for the machines, uh, like probing systems. Uh, and then you, you combine that with a uh, repeatable foundational element, such as the ball lock system, and you have the makings of a automation powerhouse just with uh, your off-the-shelf machine tool. Uh, and, and that's not talking about adding robots. That's not talking uh, about adding really anything else. So what's incredible about that is like one of the, the concepts we share with customers a lot. So we have this, this ball lock system. We have these repeatable locations. And we know, um, because we face it as well, uh, there's this skills gap out there. So, you know, you can always have uh, most of your day chewed up with these changeovers, as we've discussed, with these um, uh, setup issues, interpretation of of, uh, work instructions, all these kind of things that that play on you, uh, that eat at your efficiency. So what we try to promote to customers is let's take these fixed locations and let's say we don't care anymore about uh, what, sh- what job we put in what location, but what we do is we uh, put an identification feature in the fixture plate or in the work holding that's always at the same location uh, in there. And so that when we create programs now, the first thing that happens uh, in the program is it goes to a sub program, jumps down to the probe, the probe goes over to that feature location uh, probes that feature based on feature size. Uh, it does some simple Boolean um, logic and looks at it and goes, oh, this is uh, job number such and such, calls the program. So now all of a sudden, um, if we do this correctly, we can put three, four, five, six jobs across this this table. And the operator, all they have to do is put the fixture plate in the machine 
uh, fire up the uh, probing sequence, and it identifies what the job is, um, what the tool list is, uh, what the in-process inspection features are, and everything. So now, um, when we start talking about what the benefits are of uh, and this is what I used to teach uh, at, the, at the college level when we started talking about jigs and fixtures was that the jigs and fixtures and the machine tools really transferred um, the um, skill needed by the uh, specialized person down to the tool, right? And so now it's embedded in the tool. So uh, that takes away some of that skill. Well, th this is the same thing that happens now when we start working with our uh, machine tool concept and this probing is that we've taken that skill set, reduced it down uh, to the machine. Now the machine is managing all of this for us. So, um, you know, that's just with an off-the-shelf machine without spending uh, a ton of extra bucks on stuff. And let's just say that your volumes... Um, explode uh, in terms of the number of jobs you have after that, well, then that's when you start to climb up the automation staircase and add pieces like robots and uh, offline inspection equipment and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, just with what's on the shelf today, uh, someone could really uh, uh, explode their business mm -hmm. just with what's on the shelf. So when you look at a, a product like a ZPS, your mm -hmm. uh, zero-point system, do you see customers utilizing that from roughing operations, finishing operations, inspection operations? So they're loading up a part, and then that's transferring through various different processes? Absolutely. Um, uh, many of our products, uh, our QuickLock product, our uh, zero-point system, uh, they all have that capability to um, be utilized in, uh, say, like a horizontal lathe environment. Then they're moved over into a five-axis milling environment uh, without ever uh, letting go of the part. Uh, then we can go on to, um, you know, CMM equipment. We can go into deburr stations. Uh, there's a lot of things like that we can do. Customers are just starting now to wrap their head around uh, that type of uh, workflow. Um, and it's really starting to become pretty neat. Um, when you start to see multi-pallet machines where they have um, FASTM systems on the front of them and there's 40, 50 pallets, uh, customers really like the ability to uh, basically attach their workpiece to uh, a tooling column, to a fixture plate, with a single fastener, uh, whether it's a screw, whether it's an air, uh, air gun, something like that. Um, so that's really appealing and really popular right now. Mm -hmm. All right. What type of uh, revenue, how does a customer, if he's trying to invest in new work holding, how do they realize the, the return on that investment? How do they realize revenue from those improvements? Yeah. So, you know, uh, unfortunately today, uh, back to that skills gap piece, um, many of uh, the initial uh, responses we get uh, when we start approaching people about uh, making an investment is, um, well, how much is it going to cost? Uh, well, how, how much more work is that going to make for me? This, this is from the operator side. Um, you know, or what's in it for me? Uh, more importantly, I think for the operator side of things, so there's a couple challenges there. There's the, uh, the, the whole psychology of change, number one. 
Number two, um, there's the cost. But I think that the, 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 the most difficult step is when you start to probe uh, what their um, OEEs are, and it, it comes out in the wash that mm, they're really 25 30% is what their actual efficiencies are on their runs during the day. And a lot of people don't like to have that conversation <laughs> right? <laughs> because that speaks to a lot, of, a lot of things that are going on. So when you can tell them, listen, you're running at, at, at 30% here, if you do these simple steps, uh, you spend this, you know, $10,000, $15,000 investment, um, you could be 90%. Um, you know, they're like, wow. I mean, that's, that's like a quantum leap uh, gain. Um, and and, and it, it, we see it all the time. I mean, we will see uh, regularly setup reductions in the 90 percentile. We will see efficiencies go up um, into the 90 percent range. Um, you know, it's like anything else. You have to embrace it as a system. It's not um, uh, you can't really just pigeonhole it. You really have to start to embrace it as a systemic kind of uh, mindset, mm -hmm. if you will. But that's how they really start to um, see what uh, what's in it for them, you know, monetarily. That's how they start to see the ROI numbers. Mm -hmm. So we can do all kind of um, calculations to, uh, you know, assist them in understanding, you know, where they're at today, what they can do to get to here. Um, but the, the magic is when we take a one machine, uh, usually we take a vertical mill, uh, and it's usually low-hanging fruit, and we take that and we turn that into a 90 percenter, that's when the light bulbs go off. Right. That's when the light bulb go, goes off. And, you know, some of the battles we face with uh, this, too, is really that it's, it's, it's really on the operator side because the operators are very hesitant because they're like, wow, this is going to make me look bad or this is going to make me do wor more work and stuff like that. And it's sort of like the uh, – um, the the conversation people have about robots because people are afraid of robots and they're you know it's going to take my job it's going to do this for me it's actually it, it it makes their job easier it makes their job more efficient it allows them to do higher level level uh work that's and a, that's a big part that i think that people miss out on is it frees you up to improve your life frees you up to do something better to learn get new skills and, and drive up the, the economic scale. There's a soft side of that that isn't even recognized past the just the, the basic ROI numbers of business. Um, the, the, the employee um, actually gets to ascend to a different level uh, fairly quickly um, and, and, and really do some things that are more meaningful. Yeah, so we're talking about skills gap. That's a, that's a big topic sure. in, in the probably every industry, but mm -hmm. I know we feel it uh, tremendously in the manufacturing side of things. And that's a, it's such a broad spectrum. You can talk about a skills gap, everything mm -hmm. from programmers to work holding. Um, but I do think that we see things, at least from the OEM side, from the machine tool side, um, something I, I see that's repeatable that, that I get probably half dozen calls a month on people will call up and they've got a, a certain process, a certain part that they're wanting to look at. And let's say, what kind of tolerance can I hold on this part on your machine? Mm -hmm. You know, what's your horizontal, your five axis machine? How tight a tolerance can I hold on that? And my first response is the machine tool really has a very small part of that entire process. 
um, it, it's it's much more encompassing. And I'll I'll tend to start questioning how are you going to hold holding. the part? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's your R and R on on your gauge and and your for sure uh, your work holding? And most of the time, when I throw a statement like that out there, what kind of repeatability do you have on your work holding? Deer in headlights. I get blank stares, or they you know start shifting shifting their questions somewhere else. Do you see that? I guess from the work holding side, do, uh, do you abs- run into those issues? Absolutely, and and, and in many cases today. Um, they don't. Uh, that that's not even asked. Uh, they 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 don't even uh, think of that. Uh, typically, the scenario is, here's a part. Um, help me hold it, mm-hmm. and I got to make a lot of them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it it it's really. I mean, because of their the 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 knowledge gap, it, it's uh, their uh, their interest level or their questions or their inquiries are very very basic. Mm-hmm. Um, All right, so so how do you start? I'm Wade Anderson. I'm going to call mm-hmm. you up. I've got this whiz bang part that I've got to make. Jason, here's a part I got to make. Help me hold it. What's your process? How do you get started with that? Yeah. So we do a couple things. We we really like to be in the customer's facility. Uh, you know, the phone and the email and all that stuff's fantastic, but really need to be in the customer's facility. Uh, we like to be able to look at their processes. We like to look at how they approach, uh, you know, metalworking now. Um, and then from there, we get into, you know, all the things you'd imagine about, um, you know, where's the print? Uh, what are the datums? What, what are the tolerances? Um, what is your expectation of um, throughput? What is your expectation of density? All, all of these kinds of things. Um, and with the advent of all this technology, we spoke about a, l- a little bit ago how there's this transference of um, that specialized person to the work holding or the jig or the fixture or the machine. Um, that phenomenon has really taken hold pretty hard in um, uh, developing new work holding in that we develop things now uh, that really have um, a parameter box that they fall into. So they're going to be capable of um, prov- producing this much force uh, clamp-wise. Uh, they have uh, this level of uh, dynamic stiffness, uh, and they'll hold parts to this tolerance level, right? So then if you want this kind of... Um, uh, level of accuracy and repeatability, then we have this group of products. Then we have this group of products. So it's no longer really designing uh, with uh, specificity in mind uh, like we used to uh, in terms of here's the, uh, the customer will come to you and say, I have an R&R number I got to have. Th- th- this is where you got to be. Um, and so you have to come up with uh, a solution that fits in that box. That's really not, we don't see that anymore. Uh, and if we do see it, it's going to be with the smaller portion of the business now, which is the high-volume folks. It's typically automotive, uh, appliance, uh, possibly electronics. But that is a smaller and smaller portion of the business today. So we really rarely get into those conversations. Now, I will tell you that my team back at the office um, they understand that um, backwards and forwards, and they do um, their own due diligence uh, and try and understand what the material is, um, 
we really like to too talk to them about uh, programming and uh, what their approach is to tool pathing. Yeah. What's your strategy for yeah. removing the material? Because we still have a lot of customers here in the states that that really approach uh, things with the um, I call it blunt force trauma methodology. Uh, you know, full depth, full width, chunk a chunk across there, and you know, hey, we're machining. Um, Blunt force trauma is usually what happens when I'm running a machine. So. Yeah. <laughs> right? So it, it, it's, uh, we, we start talking to folks about, you know, how, how are they toolpathing? You know, what's, the, what's their process? What kind of software do they use? Because that's part of the game, too, because we have these canned um, pa- um, uh, products in these boxes. So we need to understand how they're toolpathing uh, because not all of them are applicable. Um, so, uh, again, back to that, we don't really uh, design with uh, specificity in mind. We're using a lot of off-the-shelf products today. Right. So where do you see technology coming into play with work holding? Um, I'll tell you, back in my day, uh, we used to use telltale indicators. Um, we would set up a process, run a grinding wheel across of it, uh, and try to see how much force is being applied to the part understand where we need to add support, how do we need to adjust the work holding, things of that nature. Is any of this taking place today electronically? Is there, are you guys starting to see trends where you're using sensors in the work holding so you can see how much force is being applied? Does that get fed into the control for variable uh, you know, processing? Yeah. So this is absolutely on the radar. Uh, with all of the um, monitoring tools uh, that are available uh, in the market to monitor the machine's um, performance, there's also some uh, really sharp guys, fellow partner uh, at uh, Think, that does adaptive control technology, Karen Engineering. Um, and, and they've really taken um, that to a whole new level. So for us on the work holding side, we are creating um, work holding with sensors in it to do exactly what you're talking about, uh, provide a output uh, so that it can be received and evaluated, and then we can adapt the function of the machine. Uh, so it ties directly in with what uh, Karen, Karen does. And so we, we have that uh, for location purposes. We have it for sensing is the vice about to give up the ghost. Um, you know, uh, we know what the baseline clamp pressure is. If uh, it starts to get really light, we, it's about ready to shoot that part out. So we better slow things down. We better stop. Um, those kind of things. Um, on the location side, um, we have in development uh, reader heads that actually go in the spindle that will traverse with a, a, a basically a G-code program across the top of the uh, table, uh, sort of similar to the probing idea we spoke of earlier, and it'll identify what job is in the machine, uh, at what location it's at, and uh, load programs and, and things of that nature. So yeah, that is a big piece of what's going on today. Um, there's a lot of confirmation stuff that's required um, in the automation side of things. So as you climb up that automation staircase, um, we need to confirm: is the thing clamped? Is the thing unclamped? Is the uh, you know present sensors and stuff like that? So all of our uh, work holding is is already wired uh, for that, and we're constantly in development and working with other partners trying to understand uh you know how to uh what kind of signal to output 
what format it has to be in, and then what are our options in terms of, um, you know, uh, feeding back to the controller uh, to tell it uh, to make a change or such. Excellent. Jason, I want to thank you for your time today. That pretty much wraps up the time we've got. I want to thank you for coming in and sharing uh, everything you know about work holding. And uh, for everybody listening, if you have ideas, things that you want to hear us talk about on the podcast, please reach out to us. Until then, we'll join you next time. Bye.